Part two of, uh, it wasn't supposed to be a series, but I just didn't finish it in time last week. So part two of the seven woes of the Pharisees, the religious people, the righteous, self-righteous people rather. Uh, We want to avoid that in our lives as much as we possibly can. Jesus confronts it. We're going to try to identify it and avoid it. Not just the, uh, the effect or the influence that others might have upon us, but the things that we do to ourselves. We want to be careful. We want to identify these things to protect ourselves. And the reality is, with God, if you belong to God, no one can really truly hold anything over your head. So we need to just stop it. Put our foot down and just stop it. Stop letting people have this effect on our lives if it's negative. And that's kind of what's going on here at the time with Jesus and the Pharisees. A lot of people were listening in respect to the Pharisees, and they were putting them into a really bad position. And they were in an abusive, manipulative position place really and Jesus is like don't let this happen to you anymore people Jesus is here to bring a new way the kingdom of God a blessing yeah and so that's what we're looking at this morning but we're looking at it in light of the seven woes I now because I've got a little bit more time because this is a part two I'm going to throw in the Sermon on the Mount the, the blessings the Beatitudes at the very end as well and compare them which is I ask you to please do on your own time if you had the chance to uh, you know comparing the woes of the Pharisees with the blessings of Christ's disciples but we'll do that at the end so first slide please a Quick brief review them, because we've already dealt with actually the first four woes, but the fourth one I rushed pretty fast, I didn't, and I didn't like that. So I want to re-look at the fourth woe, but we definitely dealt with the first three woes really well last time we were together. So the first three woes, just to get our memories back on track, in Matthew 23, verse 13, we have the first woe, which I've titled... The miserable makings. So I just kind of substituted the middle word. So first one is the miserable obstruction making. Obstructions, things that get in the way of what God's trying to do in our world, in our life. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let others who are trying to. The second woe, which we looked at as well, is Matthew 23, 15, which I described as the miserable disciple-making or discipleship-making. Now, bear in mind, I'm going to come back and revisit these at the end. So I'm just trying to reintroduce these concepts to our mind or these these titles or these things that we've already looked at. I'm reintroducing our minds, looking at some more, and then we're going to come back and revisit at the very end. So the second woe, miserable disciple-making. Woe to you, teachers of the law. And Pharisees, you hypocrites, again, fancy word, hypocrites, we'll look at that a little bit later on. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Not nice. Third woe is in Matthew 23, 16 to 22. And I call this the miserable oath making. Woe to you, blind guides, you say, if anyone swears by the temple. This is a way of being passionate about your lies, basically. Oh, I swear to God, even though I'm lying to you in your face, I'm going to pretend like I'm so telling the truth. But you're totally delusional. 
and you think people are believing your lies. That's, that's what they're doing here. They're so, oh, I swear by the temple, but I can lie. Because swearing by the temple doesn't really matter. They say it means nothing. But Jesus confronts them and says, no, actually what you're doing is, is, is horribly dishonest and, 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 and a great tragedy. Anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. You say, you say if you swear by the altar, it means nothing. That's all I can fit in the slide, but you get the hints. So I want to go back and rediscuss the fourth woe, which is the next slide. I call this woe to miserable priority making. I do have a funny cartoon over there, which I quite like. The man's looking over quite, yeah, uh, hey pal, uh, there's a gnat in your soup. And the funny thing is he's got a giant camel on his spoon. That's funny because he can see the gnat. That, can you see the gnat in his spoon? I can barely see it. Can you see the camel in the other guy's spoon? Yeah, it's pretty obvious. So you get the hint. You get the, the illustration. You get the point we made here. Looking at things that are so petty while there's a big problem going on over here with the camel in the spoon. Unless you like to eat camel, but I prefer eating it cooked, not whole like that. Okay, anyways. So the fourth woe, miserable priority making. Woe to you. This is in chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again, that fancy word, hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, anise, and cumin. So these are little things, itty bitty bitty things, and they're sitting there just dividing it up, spending all their time and effort saying, well, I'll give God by tenth. Here's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That belongs to me. And here's a little itty bitty thing, number ten, that goes to God. And you put in a little God bucket. And at the end, you give it to God, whatever you do. And so they're very... And bear in mind, Jesus acknowledges that's pretty good. If you want to do that, that's fine. But the problem is you're, you spend so much time doing that, but you don't actually deal with what's important. There's important things. And these important things are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I love this because this is God's character. God is fully just, but he's also fully merciful. These are almost like contrasting themes. Fully just, always does what's right, but yet when he practices mercy, he does it in a just way. And when he does justice, he does it in a merciful way. So what I see here is a perfectly balanced scale. That is God's character. And right in the middle is where I believe faithfulness is. And that is God's always true to himself. He's always true to this perfect balanced scale. He will always do what's right. He has to do what's right. But he's so merciful. And when we see Jesus, we see that perfect balance personified. Jesus is that perfect balance of justice and mercy. We commit sins. We do wrong. That price has to be paid for. The price was paid for by the Son of God, Jesus on the cross. Mercy. We have been forgiven. Mercy. So we have that perfect scale on the cross. That's what God's interested in. In fact, let's go ahead and turn to the next slide, Gary. This is what really God's interested in. Again, you know, it's fine that they count those little pity things, but they, but they, but they should have done that in inc- including the practice of mercy, including the practice of justice, including the practice of faithfulness. But they neglect those important things, and they think that their offering is enough. But, but God doesn't really want the offering void of a heart. And that's a problem they, they thought that, that the actual physical offerings would be enough to make them right. But they neglected their heart. They didn't really have that balanced scale in their own lives spiritually. 
1 Samuel 15.22 says, But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as much as obeying the Lord? To obey this balanced scale is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. In Proverbs 21.3 it says, To do what is right and just, again the balanced scale, is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Here we see sacrifice, void of obedience. Sacrifice, void of doing what's right and just. God, God, he's not interested in that. Hypocrisy, it's fake. Jeremiah 22, 15 and 16 says this, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did, your, did not your father have food and drink? Did he did what was right and he did what was just. So all went well with him. His life was complete because he had, again, a perfectly balanced scale. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Just, right. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. So all went well f- with him. Or all, so all, and so all w- <laughs> went well. Is that not what it means to know me? To know the Lord. To know the Lord is to know his character. And his character is this perfect balance of justice and mercy. Hosea 6.6 6 says this, Do I desire mercy? Not sacrifice. Or for I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And again, Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, or O mortal, what is good. What is good? What ought we to do? What does the Lord require? This is it, guys. A heart, a perfectly balanced scale, life. He is very much interested in what you do. Again, there's a problem within, I believe, the church. And it's always been there since day one. Even here, this has been a struggle with, with, with Israel, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Is they figure, well, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't really matter what we do. What matters is that we, we tick these religious boxes. Okay, I give, I do nice things, I do this and I do this. I tick all these boxes. So what really goes on deep in my heart doesn't really matter. I can... Just whatever. I can be totally not right with God. As long as I take these boxes, I'm, I'm good with him. And that is a problem with religion, which we're seeing here and we're going to see here there. God isn't interested in your sacrifices. Without your heart, your life. Yeah, I'm talking about a surrendered life here, guys. And this goes for the bad and the good. So if you're struggling and you think, well, I struggle with, with, with doing sins and I hate it. Well, you need to sacrifice that to God. Because also, but it's not just that, it's also the good things. We try so hard to do good, and, and I want to be good, I want to get it right, and I want, okay, this is what I do to be good, and this is how I speak to be good, and this is what I, how I, you know, the things I do with my life or in the week that I do that's good, and if I get these good things right, then I'll be right with God. No, that's bogus too. He wants your whole life. He wants your whole life, a swear life, that's what you see here. It's not just the sacrifices, Oh, but I give God my money, I give God my time, and oh, I hold back from self-indulgence. Oh, aren't I great with my sacrifice? No, he's not interested in that. He wants a balanced, scaled life. Desire, a love for him, a love for acting justly, loving mercy. Walking humbly with your God. Just walk with God. Just walk with God. That's what he's looking for. So the next slide... And the next woe is woe to miserable clean-making. So this kind of is an appropriate place to have this. Again, so how do we clean? 
Well, the Pharisees, they, by doing these religious things, these, 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 these purely outside ritualistic things, they, they claim the wrong bits, while deep down inside, deep down inside there's, 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 there's filth. Like this cup here, that's disgusting. Who'd want to drink out of a cup like that? I mean, somebody spent a lot of time cleaning the outside, but the inside is disgusting. Nobody wants to drink out of something like that. It's gross. The inside is dirty still. And he says here in Matthew 23, 25, and 26, and this is the fifth woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside, they are full of greed. Okay, it's dirty. What's this dirt? It's greed and it's self-indulgence. What is greed? Greed is the act of plundering, robbery. So what these Pharisees specifically they take advantage of people. And that could be our problems as well as maybe in our religious kind of expression, our religious life. We tend to like want to look so good in front of other people, but the reality is we're just there just to rip them off. We're, we're plundering, robbery. We're just looking after ourselves and not really interested in others. We're takers. We're just take, 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 take. That's greed. How can I get how can I get from God? And I hate to say it, but I always criticized the church in the 80s. That's because it was very consumeristic. <laughs> what can I get out of my church? What can I get out of my clubs? What can I get out of this? What can I get out of that? We need to stop looking at what we can get and start looking at how we can be. Surrender our lives to God. Be with God. Be whole. Be complete. And also, and here's the thing. Self-indulgence. This is, I love this word, by the way, for self-indulgence. It's one of my favorite Greek words. Because it's not only in our Bible studies in, in the Greek, but also it's also a word used a lot in philosophy. It's called akrasia. I love akrasia. It's one of my favorite words. The best way, there's no really good way to describe it in English language except for incontinent. Yes, incontinent. You can't hold your bowels. That's, that's, what, that's the best way of describing it. It's like, it's embarrassing. It's kind of gross. It's like, it's shameful. But yet, it just happens. You don't want it to happen, but it happens. And, and, and it's, it can be also described as self-indulgent or want of self-control. And so the classic, simple, it's classic examples you hear from this is like a person who wants to stop smoking cigarettes, but they just can't do it. Or they want to stop this sinful thing that they keep falling into, but they just can't do it. And they're like, ah, that's a crazy thing. That's the craziest of the max. That's, that's what it means. It's like you want to do something. You want to change so hard, but you can't. The problem here is these, all these things need to be surrendered to God. With the Pharisees, they just cover it up. Okay, I'm admitting, I'm acknowledging that we all struggle with a crazy in a sense. The will to want to do something, but just can't pull it off. I, we all have that. Yeah, we all have that. The problem with the Pharisees is they're hypocrites. They just wash over it and pretend like it doesn't exist. Yeah? Oh, it doesn't exist. Just wash right over it. We all have, to a certain degree, levels this kind of a crazy, you know, this, this wanting to do something that we really can't pull it off because the, the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. So we all have that. But what we need to do, rather than just pretend like it doesn't happen and, and look good on the outside, we need to start looking at the heart. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19. It's, let's look at the heart. Let's clean the inside, or at least give the inside, give the whole thing to Christ, and see what he does as we submit our lives to him completely. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. This is what dirties the person. It's not enough just to clean the outside, just to clean up, to go to church and to smile and look like everything's all right, and then go home and be mucky again. 
It's the heart. These are what defile a person by not eating with unwashed hands. Okay, of course here, very similar. They were, oh, look at your disciples. They're eating there. Do they do the ceremonial cleaning? Are they ceremonial? Are they religiously clean? It doesn't matter. It's the inside that matters. Next slide. And, and, and the next woe, the sixth woe, is woe to miserable righteous making. Yes, woe to miserable righteous making. So we try to become right. And we try as hard as we can to be right before God in our own standards, in our own way. And we try so hard. And the Pharisees are very much so trying to do that, encouraging others to do it somewhat. And he says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. So again, like the cups, we have very clean tombs. What's in a tomb? Dead. Death. Dead bodies. Deadness. Outside, very clean. Inside, very dead. That's what the Pharisees are like. They look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones. Bones of the dead. And everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So here's this word hypocrisy again. And so now is the time to look at hypocrisy. And I think we all know what it is, but I put a really long list to just kind of really get right to the heart. Problem with the Pharisees is this. They're fakes. They were clean on the outside, or at least they thought they were. They, were, they loved how they looked. They loved their titles. They loved getting the pats on the back. But inside, they were just as disgusting as the rest of us are. They just pretended like it wasn't happening. So it's the acting of a stage player, synonymous with pretense, disassembling, misrepresentation, deceit, dishonesty, duplicity, lying, guile, subterfuge, feigning, falsification, shaming, faking, bluff, bluffing, counterfeiting, posturing, double dealing. You get the idea? Not very honest. I think what we're looking at here is people who aren't very honest because they, 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 they I think they base their righteousness on doing certain things. But reality is they can't pull it off. They just can't pull it off. I think what Jesus, and Jesus is looking right in their hearts, he's saying the bottom line is this, we need to be real with ourselves and be honest with ourselves. You need to be real, you need to be honest. Yes, you are miserable. But take that miserable self to God. Take that miserable self to Christ. Yeah, these guys instead are like, don't need your Christ, don't need your forgiveness, don't need that because we can do it by checking these boxes. You cannot do that. You need to give that whole life of yours to God. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything must go to God. Wickedness, lawlessness, contempt, violation of law, iniquity, wickedness. We get it. So they're filled with wickedness. They're filled with fake hypocrisy. Hebrews, this is a pretty tough one, but this is really, I think there's a, um, a bit of a, um, a prescription going on here in Hebrews. It's a prescription, but it's also a description of what goes on in the heart and what God is able to, to get at when prescribing. The prescription is the word of God, okay? So the reality is in our lives, if we stop going to the word of God, we'll, we won't be able to, 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 to fix the problems. We won't even be able to identify the problems, but we need to go to God's word to, to be healed, to be made right. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any 
double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So things that are very hard to separate. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, everything, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So for the hypocrites, for these Pharisees, they, they think they're right, but they really know they're not. They really know they're not. They really know that they're trying to do something they can't do. So they're pretending like they're going to be okay, but they're not. God knows. You've got to give account to these things. And Jesus already gave many examples in his lifetime where he saw into the hearts of these hypocrites and he tried to address it. And instead of, well, I'm, I'm sure some did repent, but most of them just walked away thinking, well, what do you know, Jesus? I'll sort it out myself. So that's the problem. Don't walk away from Christ saying, well, I'll just sort it out myself. Instead, run to Jesus and say, okay, God, okay, Jesus, I am messed up. Help me then. Help me. I'm ready. I'm ready. Here I am. I'm surrendered. That's, that's what he's looking for. And, and there's good news for the disciple of Christ, which we'll get to in a moment. And the good news is blessings. That's the good news, is blessings. The Pharisees' way of doing it, there's just confusion, manipulation, delusion, all these things. They're just horrible. And, and you're not even sure if you're right or not. Still to this day, a good Jewish man or woman would just go to the temple, they do their things. They, they can't even sacrifice because they don't have access to it anymore. So they just, they just try to, as hard as they can, year to year, to be really, really good and hope that God would accept them. But Christians, we don't have that because we can't do it that way. We need Christ to be right. He is the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice. So the reality is, without Christ and doing things the religious way, next slide, basically we're left with delusion. And that's what we have next. Woe to miserable delusion making. Matthew 23, 29 and 31 says this, and this is the seventh woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we have lived in the days, only if we were there back in the times, we would not have taken part with the shedding of the blood of the prophets. If we were there with our ancestors, with our fathers, we wouldn't be as bad as they were. They're bad, bad people. But if we were there, we wouldn't do those bad things. We would have stood up for the prophets. And we said, no, we shouldn't be killing prophets. However, Jesus goes on to say, so you testify against yourself that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. The problem is th their lifestyles point to the fact that they are no different, they are no better. Just to remind you what happened, here's the fall of Jerusalem as it was given in 2 Chronicles 36, 15 to 17. It says this, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, okay, that's these people's ancestors who they're referring to. Who This is what happened to them. He sent word to them through his messengers, these prophets, again and again and again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against people and there was no remedy. It got to the point where there, were, there was going to be no change. It was game over. He brought up against them the king of the Babylons. And that's pretty much the end for Israel at that moment. And, and, and when Christ is there, they're still, you know, dealing with the fallout of the attack of Babylon. Because they were ultimately 
under oppression. If it wasn't for the Babylonians, the Babylonians, it was the Greeks and the Romans. You know, they were constantly under governing rule of another group of people. They lost their ability to, to govern themselves. Because of what? Because of Proverbs 16, 18. Because of the pride. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before the fall. And so the reality is, they think they're so much better, but they're not. And I have a side note here I want to look at real quick. The side note goes like this. How truly similar we are to our parents? How truly similar we are to our ancestors? We think, oh, we're so much better. We've got so much more figured out. We're so much more advanced. But really, do we? Another way we might describe this little passage I put here as a little side note is this. It's not fair. You know many people I've met who says, Why? it's so unfair. How is it that human nature, how is it that all humanity has to be responsible and suffer for the, for, the, for the sin and disobedience of two people, Adam and Eve? Why is it that their disobedience, if I were there in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have sinned. Why is it that they sinned and I have to pay the price for it? You might have heard that argument before. And that's the argument I think that the Pharisees think. It's like, well, if it was us back in the, the, the days before the, the, the Babylonians came and stole us away, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. We would have listened and we would have changed. But the irony is, there is the ultimate prophet, the Messiah. And they're still not changing. We don't, so we have a chance. And I believe in the future, we will have a chance to prove ourselves as well. As Would we really be like Adam and Eve? Or are we different? This is Revelation 20, 10. This is very interesting. Or 21 to 10. Very interesting. And I only got portions of it here because it's quite a big portion. But in the future, after the resurrection, which Christians believe in the, uh, uh, a resurrection, there's going to be a time where it's going to be kind of like the days of the Garden of Eden. It's going to be kind of like the days of, of, of perfect governing because Jesus will be there to govern with the church. And it will be no excuses because we'll know God very clearly in this time. In this, in this time, Satan's going to be literally locked up. It says this in Revelation 20. I, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is a devil. You know, the one who's causing problems for everyone. Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Why is he let go? What's he going to do? Well, just like he deceived Adam and Eve. Way back when, the Garden of Eden. A perfect environment. No excuses. But yet, disobedience, yet sin occurred. The same thing is going to happen in the future when Satan's released. When the thousand years are over, this, no excuses, this perfect time of peace. And in this time is described in Isaiah prophetically, in Isaiah 11, 6, 9. This, this is the kind of environment it's going to be like. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leper will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. So it's a, it describes a time that's never, ever happened in human history. Ever yet. Except for possibly like the Garden of Eden. A total time where man is at peace with nature. Nature's at peace with itself. A perfect time. But when these, this year, when this time's over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Okay, deceiving the nations. Okay, there's no excuse. This is the perfect environment, the perfect government. There's no excuses for disobeying God. This is almost like an amity situation yet to happen. But what happens? This is what happens. In number, they are like the sand of the sea. Not just a few people, not just one or two people, but a great 
great many people decide that they're going to, yeah, agree with Satan, agree with this this, this proud way, this proud, prideful, self-indulgent way that guarantees nothing but fall. And look at the results. Stupidity is what it is. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people to make war against God's people, the city he loves. But look at this, as simple as that. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Pride comes before the fall. And you know what? It's not just a story of the past. It's also a story of the future as well. But you know what? The reality is here are these stubborn people who are no better than their ancestors and they're going to kill yet another prophet, but the perfect prophet, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Next slide. And that's why we get to Matthew 23, 32, where it says, go ahead then. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors have started. They're in the business of killing God's righteous ones. But the time is going to come very soon where God's righteous when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will be killed on the cross. So to finish this off, so give me a couple minutes to finish this off, guys. It's very important. Being a disciple. Do you want to be a disciple? Do you want to be a disciple? Well, you need to choose today whom you want to be a disciple of. There's religions out there, many religions. Not just Christianity, there's a lot of religions that are very similar because they're all about how to find your way to God. The Pharisees had a, a type of religion, which, which, which Jesus described with these seven woes. I want to compare that with what Christ has to offer because I really think we, it's a good idea to be a disciple of Christ. Because what he has to offer is much better. So let's, let's compare the blessings of Christ versus the woes of the religious Pharisees. This is what religion has to offer. Woes. Woes produced by miserable making of obstructions. Putting religious stuff in the way between you and God. Disip- it, it, it produces miserable disciple making. People following people. Oaths. Lying. It produces these dodgy priorities, putting important things off. It produces miserable cleansings, outwardly clean, but yet inwardly dirty. It doesn't really do anything of utter value, utter worth. It produces miserable righteousness-making, religious, human efforts. But they're just that. They're human efforts. They're human attempts that fail. They fall short. And ultimately, they produce delusion. False beliefs about the self and about reality. But what does Christ have to offer, guys? I love this. We look at this long time ago, Matthew 5, 3 to 12. This is what Christ has to offer. Blessings. Blessings for the disciple. Because hoiti, or hati, I love the word hati. It reminds me of a cup of hot tea. It's for, or because of, for the benefit of Christ's offering. What does Christ have to offer you? <clears throat> Listen to this. Blessings for the poor in spirit. Why? Because God has given them. Christ has offered the kingdom of heaven. Blessings for the mourners, those who are at a loss. Why? Because they're going to be comforted. Blessings for the meek. Why? Because Christ has offered them the earth, the inheritance of the earth. Blessings for the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because Christ offered them here satisfaction. They will be filled. Blessings for the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessings for the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessings for the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessings for those who are persecuted for righteousness. Why? Because the kingdom of God is for them. You see the difference between what religion has to offer versus what Christ offers? Christ wants to offer blessings for these people who are 
who are struggling. Do you struggle? Do you feel like you're struggling? Is your life filled with struggles and issues? Well, guess what? God wants to bless you. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Why? Because comfort's for you. Why? Because the earth, you shall inherit the earth. That's good news. Be happy. Why? Because you shall be satisfied. Why? Because you will receive mercy. You will see God and you will be called children of God. Again, the kingdom of God belongs to you. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you want to be religious, you got this other things to deal with. Things that get in the way. Lies, manipulation, delusions, outwardly clean but inwardly dirty. We need to surrender our lives to God and be a disciple of his.